Hello and welcome to part 16 of our Understanding Class series. Today is Friday the 16th of September 2022 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. We finally complete Chapter 4, Class, Exploitation and Economic Rents, Reflections on Sorensen's Towards a Sounder Basis for Class Analysis. This week I have the returning patron Thrash Goblin to thank. If you'd like to help support the show, please head on over to the Patreon where you get access to all those patron-only episodes and the Discord server. If you'd like to help out with the socialist planning book that Donal and myself are working on, why not check out our website, theclasslesssocietyinmotion.com, to find out all about it. And of course, the link to the slides of this episode are in the show notes. To the discussion. My, the only econ class I took, I skipped over 100 because I was in like a bong rip qualitative research program and I wanted to do a little stats as a treat. So I took like a Boolean stats course that was in the economics department. It was a really weird cultural thing. And I couldn't tell if my professor hated me because I was queer or trans or I was in like a social justice and human rights program. <laughs> Or, or if he didn't hate me at all, but like, I definitely got like low key. What are you doing here, faggot? Kind of vibes from him. It was, it was a strange, it was a strange thing. But I, I did good, pretty good in the class. I, I kind of fucking winged my way to a B. Yeah, the way that neo reactionaries are able to turn neoclassical theory into like a social Darwinist theory of everything is, mm-hmm. I think, perhaps it's most even more so than you know, Romer's like. Uh, shit that I, I, you know, I think it's cool, but I'm a nerd. And I, I guess I'm, I guess I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to learn math so that I can read that stuff. And because, you know, one of the arguments that I always hear from fucking neoclassicals and kind of burrows in my head is, oh, you just don't understand. Like, you, you just can't comprehend it because we're doing such high level science. And at the end of the day, what they're doing is, it's toy models. They're just toy models. And there's much more impressive work being done in the other sciences and and heter like look heterodox economics is a shit show too i don't want to be too flattery about it but there's all kinds of like much more sophisticated mathematics going on there like there's a really interesting way that this field believes that it is creating high math yeah it's rubbish like the like if you want to look talk with the type of maths that like should be used in economics is the stuff that beer did with like the Jay Forrester's approach for like Checo in CyberSyn, dynamical systems. That's what econ should be made of. It's a dynamical system. That's that's how it should be modeled. All of the stuff that's in neoclassical economics should just be set on fire and put in the bin. There's there's literally nothing to there's nothing to be learned from it, you know. And don't waste your life trying to argue with these twats who won't when you see them. They, you in your arguments are better than those. They won't take them on board because it's not about that. No, no, no. It's not about it. You know, there's literally nothing to be learned. Only let somebody else critique it and learn the critiques. There's literally nothing to be learned from these guys. I, I, I just, I, I just have to say, it's highly sophisticated instrumental reason. You, you don't see proofs in most ideology. Well, yeah, what I was they're not say, even proofs though. As, like, as a math major, as, as someone who's got a degree in it. The dirty secret about math, when you apply it to anything but itself, is that you can make math say whatever the fuck you want. Like, the real issue here is is where it starts. 
the the fundamental assumptions the 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 place the place where all of this is coming from is so bad shit that it kind of doesn't matter what you do with the math on top of it it's it's so, all going to come to something really really fucking dumb <laughs> so i wanted to ask kyle do you take issue with rights because you said something to the effect of like you don't have a problem with the methods you have a problem with the fact that the methods are so two-faced so do you have a problem with rights eminent critique of this because the the assumptions are so two-faced or is it just Sorensen that makes you angry yeah no like so like i was struggling to to try to like articulate something intelligent there and i think the I do, I do fundamentally have a problem with the method. I can't get around that. And um, I think that the problem is what I was saying about being two-faced is even when you are making a point like rights, if you're using the neoclassical framework consistently, you are being two-faced because you're saying things without actually saying them. Because yeah, like you're talking about rent without the notion of a rent stream over time, which is like, what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. And and so I well, I just I was just gonna say that I feel like in this reading group, I'm going to be like Otto Neurath was back in the old Vienna circle days where whenever somebody <laughs> would bring something up, he would just shout metaphysics. Um <laughs> and everybody bullied him into replacing that with just shouting M instead of metaphysics because it <laughs> less of their time but yeah I'll, I'll i'll try to i'll try to tone it down no just, no kyle keep the rage just, keep the fucking rage keep yeah, it somebody somebody has to be yeah. apoplectic on this show oh i don't think it works yeah, it's, 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 yeah, yeah we, we, there's a big gap there's a hole left in my heart oh please let, let me let me let me just say this though that um what we're what we've been saying about time and look i'm i'm adopting this for the sake of argument I do fundamentally agree that abstracting from time does violence to economies. And there, like, there's a whole movement in like called evolutionary economics, some of which has been absorbed into the mainstream, but you can't, it would be hard for them to really incorporate dynamics into. You can have discrete time slices in, right. in neoclassical uh, economics, but you cannot have a continuous time in even right. like a way that admits like Zeno's paradox. <laughs> So yeah, yeah. So fundamentally, like in, in a way, the the coolest thing about calculus is missing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, exactly. so like, it's it's really not some just lefty axe to grind. You can just care about truth value, and if you like, let's say you're just missing the the, the lobe that gives a shit about ideology, and <laughs> you're only interested in truth value. You can have an axe to grind about this legitimately. It is it is a bizarre abstraction that not just Marxists with motivated secret theorists, like secret hopes about the labor theory of value, you know, argue it's, it's just, yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that the, the point where I find this to be most concerning about economics is that the conception of the economy is a conceptual system that has been used to destroy an enormous amount of life on earth. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, justify it as something that we don't need to be concerned about because there is the in group that belongs in the economy 
and there's the out group that doesn't matter. It's the ecology. And, it's always bracketed. Yeah. The ecology. Yeah, exactly. Whatever Which often is, enough includes other humans. Yes. You know, it's, it's very much like nature in the sense of like also nature of like the people we don't like. They're too bestial to be human. And as long as we stick with a economic framework that does not admit the existence of time, I don't see how we get to some kind of like political ecology that transcends that in-group, out-group distinction that is leading to like an ongoing mass extinction event. Because like, how can you, how can you talk about nature without talking about one of the most fundamental constructs of the physical world? Like, how do you get to materialism? <laughs> I like, I believe like the true materialism is one that acknowledges material time and space time and space in, in yeah. a material world and there is nothing ideologically more suited to denying that humans exist in a material world than neoclassical economics and its denial of space and time as things that <laughs> yeah oh god well part of it all is that we can thank our lord and savior karl marx for getting us off the you know, vulgar ground of Epicurean materialism that, you know, takes vulgar interests in the nature of the world. And we know that what materialism really means is social, right? Which is kind of something about old school political economy that does legitimately reflect on Marx's notion of materialism. Like, yes. which is yes. maybe like, you have so Marx's materialism is cool, like uh-oh. <laughs> you have to do so, a roundabout maneuver to re-include na nature in the social in order for the project to be useful in any way, right? Yeah. So to circle back to the text, though, I, I, I just want to completely understand where you're coming from because, you know, I'm a bimbo and I got to ask questions to understand. Isn't it, if, if you take on, if you assume neoclassical for the point of imminent critique and it shows its face uh, or it shows its ass as, as two-faced and and foolish isn't that mm. a good thing so there's there's the way in which you can arrange a toy model uh like Ezri described in order to show a contradiction with what neoclassicals make as like normative claims or even as sort of quote-unquote scientific uh claims which are like sort of semi-normative. They have the, the normative value of being scientific. And that's kind of like what Romer was trying to do, right? Was to like, you know, do the imminent critique. But the problem with doing the imminent critique is you still have to accept as valid the fundamental assumptions of the model for it to be imminent. Right. Right. And well, that's where I'm taking issue with. Yeah, no, but I, I think what you're saying about imminent critique makes sense because I think what you're supposed to do in imminent critique, and this is what makes Marx such a, God bless him, but a poor role model in, in this respect, is imminent critique is it, for the purpose of you know, drawing out a contradiction. It's supposed to demolish the framework in which you're working in. Marx is ironically the figure that people most use to reintroduce classical political economy into discussion. The framework... 
he at mm -hmm. first was, I think, yeah. trying to demolish, but he but he later got more scientific aspirations. Yes, and I, I I just personally believe that there are not the tools in an Im imminent critique of neoclassical economics to perform that demolishing work because you're starting with no space and time. And that's a big problem. But but if I hear you clearly, because of the uh, an initial split between economics and ecology, perhaps yeah. one could say that an imminent critique of economics by itself can't. Yes, it's, it's what it's, we need. Economics, period, as a field, because we still have to buy into the split somehow. Yes, exactly, okay. exactly. Yeah. Yes. So it's, I can agree it's with like, that. Because it's like, you know, yeah, you can use the master's tools, but like sometimes the master's tools are just like a suicide booth. And that's, you know, what are you going to do with that? Right. I, I guess my, my, the reason why I kept asking this is I'm, I'm walking away from the seminar critique being like, this shit sucks. Like, fuck neoclassical. It's not like I'm walking away with this being like, well, you know, Space and time doesn't really matter. You know, I'm walking away from this being like, this is some of the biggest horseshit I've ever seen. So that's why I kept asking. But I think I do understand that, like, in no way is assuming neoclassical economics going to deal with fucking climate change or <laughs> issues of, mm. of, of, you know, the appropriation of, of Native American lands. Like, it just can't. It can't. So, and and it, it can't deal with things like the ways that finance can exploit people over time because you can't like, again, the like you can't really learn anything about finance from the system. That's super useful because in the system, the payoff schedule is perfectly predictable. So that doesn't really tell us anything about the antagonism between lend lender and debtor. And finance people have thermodynamic models, which apparently also suck as it turns out, but whatever. What are you talking about? This sounds dank. I could just like borrow money and it's going to be fine no matter what. Like sign me the fuck up. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, if we just defined our way, like all the problems with uh, lending money. Well, yeah. Where's that bank? Well, then sign me up for the neoclassical <laughs> bank to give me a loan. Let's I, fucking excuse do me. This. I need, I need to speak to your bank manager. I have a proof here that demonstrates yeah. this economy. Yeah. That I excuse me. Time is not real. So I am technically not late. Yeah. yeah this is the, uh, this is the <laughs> economics version of the film pie. I believe. Are, are you coming? <laughs> Are you calling my information imperfect? <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> okay, let's get yeah. back on track. Can we get back yeah. on track to this slide? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no track. Only no time. track. Only track. Okay, who, who wants to do this one? All right, yeah. my turn. Class, okay. exploitation, and perfect competition and information. What about the third criterion, the appropriation principle? Do capitalists appropriate the labor effort of workers in a capitalist system with perfect competition and information? In such a system, in equilibrium, workers who expend more effort would be paid more, workers who shirked would be paid less, and according to standard marginalist reason, the amount they were paid for their effort would exactly reflect the price of the product they produced with that effort. The standard reasoning of neoclassical and economics to deny the existence of exploitation and capitalism. Even under the above conditions, the following is true. One, the only labor performed is by workers. Two, 
capitalists appropriate that product and thus appropriate the fruits of labor effort of workers. Three, for any given wage level, capitalists have an interest in getting workers to expend more effort, more labor effort than workers would spontaneously want to expend. Four, if workers own their means of production, capitalists would find it difficult to get workers to work as hard for a given level of wages. In a purely competitive capitalist economy, therefore, antagonistic interests over the expenditure and appropriation of labor effort continue to exist. Therefore, rents do not capture all the aspects of exploitation. Who could have thunk? That, I mean, this is this is a good book to give to baby econ students. Be like, read this, my my poor child. Read just like literally ten pages and come back to me. Yeah, just, we, we've we've talked about it, but like you know, it is just I I find personally because I I haven't done the actual I haven't read the actual neoclassical econ, but when you read these arguments, they are so nonsensical, like and so riddled with holes that I feel like I, my brain isn't structured right to receive these arguments. Like I cannot understand in what kind of way you could look at the structure that had been set up here for this, where you have workers and not workers and try to make out that they're like, I don't know. I don't even know what I'm saying. It's just like, basically, the last sentence is all we need to get from this is that rents do not capture all the aspects of exploitation. Okay. Well, this is why right libertarians are so into weed. They have to just like fucking smoke fat dudes like huge fat dudes on a daily basis in order to get this to absorb into the brain and stick. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think that's any excuse. Someone who smokes fat dudes on a regular basis, I still think you have intellectual and moral autonomy from these. To be clear, I'm not saying dudes necessarily in, in, is necessary and sufficient. It's are just we, necessary. Are we saying marijuana is reactionary? Is this what we've come to? Yes, I am straight edge, Sophie Maoist, and if you smoke dudes and have sex and do anything fun, you're a counter-revolutionary. That's it. Joining the White Army. Okay, right. I'm going to take on this next section. Employment rents. In Sorensen's analysis, the employment rents workers receive because of transaction costs in the employment relation counts as a form of exploitation, rendering the workers an exploiting class. That's right. The workers are exploiting. Here, Wright argues that in general, employment rents constitute one of the way workers are able to mitigate their own exploitation. Now, this this is like the uh, this this part of the of the book really really annoyed me. I must say because one of the best things about for me, like for reading so far in the book, the way Wright talks is that he brings this kind of analytical philosophical approach to trying to very precisely define terms and stuff like this yet here we here we have him taking on board the, the even the concept of an employment rent i mean this is outrageous as a marxist that he could even use that term without it being like in, in sarcastic that he can actually like you should never use a term like employment rent, like it's not a rent. You know what I mean? As a Marxist, it, it just it, it just infuriates me how like he takes on board this neoclassical term and uh, and and doesn't critique it, and he just talks and takes it as a given. It just dr drives me absolutely mental for someone who's been very precise to 
to then switch into this kind of imprecision for me is just, I, I, I kind of find it outrageous. To, to be clear, you're objecting to him taking on the definition of rents, right? Like, that's oh, employment it. rents. Employment rents, yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. And he doesn't, like, he, he, he doesn't critique it as far as I can remember, but he takes it, he deals with that as a type of a phenomenon in capitalism. I'm going to continue. Like, if I take that back, if I'm wrong, but that yesterday or whenever I reread it, the same thing hit me again. Okay. First point, where imperfect information exists, capitalists are generally prepared to pay employment rents to workers in order to extract labor effort from them. This has been elaborated by Bowles and Gintis and Akerlof and Yellen, who is a Fed, who is the current Fed chair. Because of inf perfect information in the labor market and process, capitalists are forced to spend resources on enforcing the labor contract through supervision, monitoring, etc., in order to detect shirking. Three, catching workers shirking is only useful for capitalists if workers care about being punished, especially about losing their jobs. The threat of being fired increases as the cost of job losses to workers increases. Paying workers an employment rent, a wage above their reservation wage, increased the cost of job loss and thus the potency of employer threats. So, you know, if I've got a job now and the work, I normally I only really get paid £8 an hour for it again, paid £10 an hour for it, well, I care more about getting fired then, so I will not shirk uh, as much. And it'll it'll be a cost to me if I have to go into the, into the job market again to get an £8 an hour wage. Next, the cost to employers of extracting labor effort thus consists of two components. The cost of catching working shirking, working shirking, uh, monitoring costs, and two, the cost of making job loss hurt. That's an unemployment rent. The employment rent is thus a wage premium that workers are able to get because of their ability to resist capitalist attempts at extracting labor effort. In conditions of perfect i.e. free to acquire information, the capitalist capacity to appropriate effort is enhanced since workers lose this ability to resist. Rather than seeing employment rents as a form of exploitation by workers, it is more appropriate to see such rents as the outcome of resistance to exploitation by workers. Right, so he nearly gets there, but he still uses the term employment rents, and I just find that just gross. Yeah. Well, isn't he just outlining Sorensen's argument here? That's kind of how I took it. Uh, hmm. Like, I think he's trying to provide an alternate, like, pro-labor, like, account for of, of employment rents and who's doing the exploiting. Like, oh, yeah, this is later on, yeah. And so this is, it kind of unfolds from his definition of exploitation when taking the neoclassical yes. account. The, the definition of exploitation is different from Sorensen. Therefore, he's making a very slightly different point to him. Okay, so Wright's definition of exploitation is slightly different from Sorensen's, right? So when Sorensen says that actually exploitation is good, Wright is saying the same thing, but from a very slightly different assumption at the beginning that gives it a little bit more pro-worker flavor. Well, I don't think, I don't think so, right is putting the moral spin that it's good per se, but he's taking on 
the definition of employment rents, uh, but changing I, his definition of exploitation. Yeah, because because right right doesn't think that like unemployed workers are exploited by solidarity wages. Yes, it, this this only applies to the case in Sorensen. The, the the similarity is the case in Sorensen where workers who are making above the reservation wage are exploiters. That they they agree that there is a rent collected in both of those cases, but they disagree about other things. Right, and to answer a question from the chat. How does this constitute a rent? I believe that rent in this uh, section and in this framework is basically just any amount of value that you can get from some kind of asset above and beyond the value that you would get from it in a situation of perfect co competition. So I guess, for, I don't know, like I don't take as much issue because this is, to, to me, this is just a thought experiment, right? Like, let's assume Sorensen's bullshit and you still end up with class antagonism. I don't really see like, the problem there. Saying, like, um, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I, I think like, I think this explanation for, for employment runs isn't, this doesn't, this doesn't squick me out as much. And the neoclassical framework of rents I think is one of these like real abstraction things that mirrors something that happened in the economy where once like, like the concept of rent is from what I understand is all tied up in land. You know, that's what all the old school political economy is about. It's about, it's about positionality. Rent. It's about positionality. Exactly. It's, it's like yeah. you have a position right. that allows you to, to get an economic advantage and right. there's sort of a mental leap that's taken from land rent to like having a social position that allows you to get an economic advantage. Having an asset specifically, right. but, like the, having the means of production that you rent basically. Okay, Not necessarily so, means of production, no, but, like a house but as well, remember. We're talking, so at first rent is like, landed property in, in political economy. From what I understand, intellectual property rents are one of the, like, one of the earlier abstractions from this, you know, concept of renting a literal place to, oh, I, I invented this idea, and this is my idea, or this is my, like, thing, and if you use it or, or play it in a certain context or whatever, because I'm renting this place of abstract space, I get a cut, Right. So there's already in, in the process of capitalism quite early on an abstraction into the abstract plane with rents. And so the way, the way that I see the neoclassical expansion of the term rents to cover all kinds of differentials is mirrored in the way that capitalism actually does expand markets that are kind of like that. Sometimes people call it neo-feudalism or techno-feudalism or whatever. And, or um, content markets and like more things resemble intellectual property markets resemble rentier markets. So I don't think just, you know, returning to a, a purely classical definition of rents is going to help us understand the 21st century, century economy because there's been a real like procession of abstraction that's happened over the course of time in capitalism. And, you know, we do want a more like maybe precise definition of rents, 
But I, I don't, I like this, this argument that Wright makes at the end, I don't take to be totally an imminent critique. I, I do think. Well, Russ he circles around at the end of the, the yes. chapter and says, so basically in conclusion, Sorison's whole thing about rent is, is silly. And this is a whole different kind of relationship. It's wage exploitation. Right. But the, so it's not like he, he he's, no, he's not. Yeah. He's not endorsing this concept of exploitation, but I, th I think he would agree with Sorensen and this making Tom upset, right? That that this is some that employment rent exists. Yeah, and, I get, and, I get and that. You think of that as a rent. Like, yeah. And th there are there are ways that he's there saying, are ways that workers are divided in the economy by wage differentials. And you, sometimes people think of those things as rents. And when you think about trade and labor and between the, you know, first and third world, let's say there's distributional differentials. And sometimes people call those things rents. There's like a, a number of like usages this way that, I don't know, I, I, I just, I, I, don't, I don't find that as intrinsically objectionable. He is saying that, that the possession of labor power by a worker allows them to become a rentier. Why They're am I getting a math degree? Right is because I, I want I kind of want skill rents above what I can make right that's now. Not, that's not a rent. No, no, it doesn't have it. It doesn't have any necessary relationship to uh, accreditation. It's it's the employment not rent. Necessarily. The the employment rent is any kind of positional advantage. But yes, if you were to if you were to yeah if you were to reduce it down to the question of labor power, then yeah, like it's it it would be skilled labor would give you a, a, a rent that you could collect. Well it's not uh, rent. Like it's not I, a rent. Like you, I, you get... I, I don't I don't think I don't think that it's necessary that, that that I don't think this necessitates an anti labor perspective or an anti communist or anti Marxist or anti worker perspective. But, but let's get it straight, right? Marx breaks down the economy into two different types of skilled and simple labor. Right. So skilled labor produces value at a higher rate. Okay, so if you are skilled labor, according to Marx, right, you will be getting, you know, you the fact you're getting a higher wage is because you're creating more value, depending on, you know, obviously depending on what your role is, whether it's value creating or not. So, like, you're not getting a rent, you're getting exploited still, but you're creating more value. The idea that that, that is a rent is just it's like a, the use of a wrong concept. Like, so if a worker is able to extract more like money here that he calls in like some kind of an employment rent, what that means is that in, in that relationship that the worker has more power and he's able to, he's got more labor power, his value of his commodity is higher. There's no rent involved here. Now, if you are working as a skilled laborer, say for a company and you're getting above the value of which you're, of which you're producing, at that point, you can call it a rent, I think. But you can't call it before that, okay? And like the you know skilled labor are not generally maybe in the exception they can get a rent, but in general they're getting exploited, but they're creating more value. Yep, agreed. Yes, certainly by like labor theory of value standards. Quite correct, and like what? But what I find frustrating here is that like. Like, I feel, reading this now, maybe Wright will say somewhere else in another book, but I get the impression that he thinks employment rents, the way that we're, we're talking about them here, is a, is a reasonable, is a, is a scientific, accurate description of that phenomenon. And as a Marxist, 
you know, I just don't know. Like, that's just like if if you're going that way, I don't know how you can critique somebody from getting rid of exploitation because you're basically just calling differences in labor in power relations between people a rent, and and that's that that's that is not a rent, you know. And I, I just I, I just find that offensive that that a Marxist could call that an, an employment rent and take well, it on its terms. I just there is a, there is a version there is a version of labor theory of value that doesn't accept the idea of like a multiplier effect for skilled labor. And in that one, sometimes people use rents to describe the difference. Fair um, enough. Yes, it would necessarily follow if you didn't accept uh, that uh, skilled labor is more value productive than, than you would have to uh, conceptualize it as a rent. There's well, no other way to really you, think about well, it. Well, why, why couldn't you, like, why can't you, you know, with the, with a the sloppy, fucking stuff that we're dealing with here today why couldn't you uh conceptualize it as an exploitation that's the fucking shit that's going on here we're mistaking exploitation it's way worse that's why this chapter is interesting is because you know however aberrant you find rights position so, so okay here's my thing i i don't know i don't know dick from shit right like i don't know whether i fully buy on to the labor theory of value or not Everyone could take their crack at trying to convert me to the religion. I'm down. But my vibe check with this, right, is that I think rents, just knowing what little I know, I think rents make a lot of sense with to describe intellectual property, definitely land. I don't know if I necessarily agree that skilled labor is like you're, you're renting out the asset of your education for rent. If it, you know, if that's the implied thing that's here or not. Well, I mean, if we want to, if you want to talk about like what right is saying a little bit more directly, um, we could just read the last, uh, the, the concluding paragraph of the chapter. Good idea. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 let's keep speculating. Here, I, I, think, <laughs> I think it might be there in this slide here. Have a look. So, in some cases, rents might still be directly a form of exploitation. The rents that a landowner charges a tenant farmer constitute a direct appropriation of the labor value of the farmer, for example. In other cases, rent acquisition is better thought of as a way of mitigating exploitation. It is for this reason that, in general, I have argued that employees, who are the recipients of various forms of rents within their earnings, should be regarded as occupying a, quote, privileged appropriation locations within exploitation relations, unquote. The concept of economic rent, therefore, can play a useful role in the theory of class and exploitation by clarifying the range of mechanisms by which exploitation is enhanced or counteracted, but not by reducing the concept of exploitation simply to advantages obtained by asset owners under conditions of imperfect competition and imperfect information. Right. So he completely buys into the idea of, of employee employment rents. as a, Exactly. As a yes. Yeah. It's offensive as a Marxist, how you could come to that conclusion. Like you could have problems with the labor theory of value, say, you know, right is coming out of the, that, that thing, you know, that, you know, the problems that like the TSSI, I think, deals with conclusively and i can i can take yeah okay so you want to you want to redesign your labor theory or you you want to redesign the theory of exploitation blah 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 but he still takes on board 
this offensive for a Marxist description, which he doesn't have to like take on board the idea of like somebody being able to get a little bit better paving, exploit a little bit less as actually getting a rent. That seems to me to be a complete contradiction uh, in terms or something. Not contradiction in terms, but like a, a concession to neoclassical. Mm, it's like mm -hmm. he takes on all the concepts from neoclassical economics well, well, to make to 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 call that thing a rent for me. There, there is an issue, I think, which is that in Capital, Marx says that the determination of the wage rate is something based on social conflict, right? Like it's, 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 it's based on the, the conflict of the workers and the capitalists. This power is power relation, you know. It's a power relation. So when we describe that wage rate going up or down like what is the precise term that we can use to describe like the stakes of that antagonism that's it's the that's it's the value of the labor power that's what it is it's the value of the labor power does climate accept the uh, uh, sorry i was just putting together like uh, something some old debate that i was that um andrew Kleiman was talking about like does the tssi accept the like the multiplier effect? Because I remember yes. him arguing for a form of homogenous labor. No, 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 he does. Yeah, completely. Like, right. he, it's been he, he, I have asked him explicitly in an interview only a couple of years ago about that. All I know is that because I'm part of, if I were to join an industrial union for healthcare, I'd basically be going into the hospital, karate chopping a nurse and stealing her purse. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah, babe. Sha, sha, sha. The only way that I could see this being as as making any kind of sense is is if you're talking about like licensure, for example. Like if you get if you're an architectural drafter, you don't actually tend to make that much because you are tied to your ability to work is by and large tied to your ability to put a stamp on your drawings that are accepted by the state. So if you don't have that, you essentially need to be working for someone who does. And that person is going to be taking a cut of your, essentially the money that you're, that you're making for the business, right? That's how businesses operate. If you have your own license, if you can actually stamp documents yourself, even if you are working for someone else, what you get paid increases significantly, right? So in that kind of instance, is that licensed ability to stamp a legal document, therefore an asset that can be charged rent upon above and beyond what you would normally get? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah, it would, it would, uh, it would yeah, alter the distribution of, of returns to labor through rents. Yes. Okay. Like, yeah, I'd have to check. I'd have to think about that one. You know, like, I, I think... Accreditation. I think... I'm not exactly sure about accreditation, Kyle, because, like, are you just changing your, your, the, the amount of exploitation that, that you're undergone by your accreditation? Yeah, but the, the point of accreditation is it's like a form of social closure, making, you know, making the labor pool smaller. Yes. Like, that's, that's like the whole fucking point. There's, there's some problems with the way that what you might call labor aristocracy or even like the sort of n nationalist focus that classical labor movements had. 
that would create these dynamics that, you know, look, I'm, I'm a pluralist. It doesn't, I know that people aren't all gonna have the same frameworks. And so if you can describe these dynamics in a way using these like extended concepts of rents, maybe once the dust is settled, I'll feel much more strongly about this and I'll, you know, want a nice ortho way of understanding rents. But, you know, where I'm at now, like, and, and I think in general for, for analysis, you know, we, we, we can make our case, but um, I, I, it's, one, I, it's, one, it's one thing to say that like one, one analysis is like superior than the other. And I guess it's another thing to say that like these, con- the concessions of these premises of rent, you know, constitutes a fundamental betrayal of the working class, let's say. Oh, yeah, I, I think I don't point, know if I feel no, like it's offensive. Like I feel like maybe oh, look, it's, it, it might be wrong, but, yes, but but why is it like the thing is look like why do all the errors go one way, right? Why do the why do the interpretations all line stack up in one way? That that that's that's the problem. It's not like if somebody has an imperfection that that rights taking upon board the idea that they are in employment rents to me that somebody can has a better bargaining position to reduce their amount of exploitation is a rent says something for, to me fundamental about his politics vicky will you take this last slide or this second last slide okay so what about skilled workers so Wright claims that it is certainly the case that in conditions of solidarity wages the wages of skilled workers are lower than they would be in the absence of union-generated reductions of wage differentials. He gives two reasons why the unskilled do not exploit the skilled in this context. Solidarity wages enhance overall class solidarity and thus shifts the balance in favor of the workers. In the long run, this advantages the material interests of skilled and unskilled workers. And two, In the absence of solidarity wages, skilled workers would receive union-generated rents. Then what the solidarity wage really does is simply reduce the rents acquired by skilled workers and redistribute them to the unskilled workers. Even if you regard rents per se as a form of exploitation, this does not constitute a form of exploitation of skilled workers by the unskilled, but of the economic agents who pay their rents to the skilled workers in the first place. If we see solidarity wages as a redistribution of rents from the skilled to the unskilled, perhaps the unskilled are exploiting the capitalists, since after all the capitalists are paying the wages and thus the rents. But capitalists, under the definition of exploitation being used here, are themselves exploiters of workers by virtue of appropriating the fruits of labor of the workers. The rent component of solidarity wages should therefore in general be thought of as a mitigation of capitalist exploitation rather than a form of exploitation in its own right. Right. And much of Tom's, and you know, I think understandably so, much of Tom's attitude towards calling something like this a rent is because of the association of, you know, rent as as a form of exploitation. So in the same like way that exploitation and non-exploitative economic oppression can have this like moralized discourse around it, we can have a a moralized discourse around rents that is informed by this kind of feeling that rents are always tantamount to exploitation. 
But this is explicitly not Wright's view. He sees this form of rent as a mitigation of the, of the exploitation of worker by capitalists. That essential labor appropriation principle, I think, defends him from a lot of nonsense that could otherwise come about by assuming these principles. Right, but he takes them on their own terms. Like that's that's my problem, he, that he he takes their their concept of like an employment rent and runs with it. He thinks, oh, employment rents are good, and I object to that concept. Convince me that this is a worse analysis, because I don't care if he takes them on their own terms or not. Like, what better explains the reality? I don't even. I th- I think I kind of disagree with with this honestly, but I don't. I don't no, like, have this knee-jerk kind of hatred that I feel from other people. Like, does it explain well, does it explain the real world well or not? Is really what I care about at the end of the day. But I think the terms matter. Like, it matters whether that it is in a rent or whether it's just literally the worker has got more power and they're able to not be exploited. Like, so you, you, you start, end, you end up with language where you start describing like workers as, as having like doing the same shit as capitalists are doing in a relationship where they're goddamn being exploited. You know, I just That's don't... explicitly not what Wright is saying. No. So again, the terms matter if one term better explains the real world or not. So I don't feel like you really answered my question. No, what do you mean? Like, like Wright is is calling these employment rents, right? Yes. He is call, yeah, he is calling it employment rents, okay. but he's not saying that they're doing the same thing that the capitalists are doing. They're mitigating. That's correct. That's correct. Okay. Yeah, but they're I mean, mit- he's but he's calling them employment rents. That's my point. And so he's even why he says it's not the same. So what? He's he's bringing in this yeah. term. He's, yeah, uh, absolutely. He's, he's absolutely. not drawing. He's not drawing it. With capitalists, he's drawing equivalents with rentiers of like landlords and shit, right? Like that's it. But he's saying capitalists are doing a, a, a separate thing when they're exploiting workers. Yeah, and I, and I would say further, I agree with you, Esri. It is an analytical decision, but also it's more than just that. To me, it's a political decision. Well, no, I said this is an analytical objection. Like, yes, yeah, so, I mean, which is fine. There's, yeah. there's nothing wrong with that. Yes, but but I think it's more like like I'm having an analytic objection, but I'm also having a political objection. But yeah, it's both. I guess okay, but like so so your problem with it is simply that it conflates what wor- workers and landlords. Correct. Like, is that the essence of your objection? Yes, but, absolutely. But I mean, look, landlords... as, as, if, as if the worker in a position Land... who's been exploited is actually somehow exploiting the capitalist. But that's not that's what, what that's. Well, no, he does say that actually. Well, he does say that you, you, if anything, you can think of unskilled workers as exploiting the capitalists. It's like, no, yes. I don't think he actually does say that specifically. Yeah, I, he, like, he says something like that. Yeah, I think that's probably because he he wouldn't co-sign that someone that's not appropriating labor effort is an exploiter. I think what he's I think what he's saying is that even if you take on that rent is necessarily exploitative then if you're going to call what the unskilled worker is getting above and beyond what they quote unquote should be getting then you can't really call that an exploitation of the skilled worker it's more an exploitation of the capitalist 
of of the person who owns the assets and therefore like if you're exploiting the exploiter in a sense that kind of cancels out like that's that's kind of the argument that I'm reading here but you're not exploiting them saying that the greater evil here is exploitation what the capitalists do and if you subscribe to that like extreme like all rents are exploitative view then yeah the 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 rents that the unskilled workers are taking may exist but they're taking them within the context of a larger exploitation a larger injustice Right. No, let me let me just read no, it real no, quick. No, no, I, I no, found no, it. No, I found no, it. No, let me no, just read no. it real quick. No, no. Let me just say one thing in, in response to Kyle. There, like you are taking neoclassical economics on board. If you are taking the position that the the worker they're able to get a higher wage than what is like in whatever that re- reference, whatever market rate or whatever that's implied under perfect conditions or whatever, that anything above that is a rent. Like, like we're taking neoclassical definitions of what are rents on board if we're going to say that yeah 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 no i'm just, i was and just i object I was to just, that i object to that fucking fundamentally no 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 i i, I know i'm just i was just trying to describe what his argument was yeah he yeah. is kyle's an right. let's just read let's just read this we just just read this if solidarity wages are viewed simply as redistribution of rents from skilled to uns to the unskilled perhaps the unskilled are exploiting the capitalists since after all Capitalists are paying the wages and thus the rents. But capitalists, under definition of exploitation being used here, are themselves exploiters of workers by virtue of appropriating the fruits of labor of workers. So what I'm reading that as, and again, I'm not necessarily endorsing that, but what I'm reading that as is that this is sort of a form of counter-exploitation to exploit the exploiters, right? Or to... And they're not exploiting maybe to the same extent that they're being exploited, but it's a way to get a little bit more, right? Now, here's my thing, right? I I give two rats asses whether these concepts come from neoclassical or whatever, wherever they come from. What I want to know is like, does this explain things better? And what I'm hearing a lot of objections to is, it just comes from neoclassical, so therefore it's bad. And for me, and again, I already kind of don't necessarily agree with all of this, but for me, I'm going to need something a little bit better than neoclassical bad. Like that's you don't not, need to convince me of that. That's not even what I'm. That's not what I'm. Like, God Almighty! Like when a worker is in relation to a capitalist and they work for a wage for them. The rate of exploitation, you know, varies within that. Okay. Now, the fact that a worker can reduce the amount of exploitation is not, they are like, they're not exploiting the capitalists. They're reducing their rate of their own exploitation, right? There's not a rent going on there. There's a reduction in their exploitation due to their, their the value of their labor power is higher. Okay. And like to, to, to somehow bring the language in, and bring the and confuse the relations of production and confuse the analysis to call that a rent is just look look if you don't understand my point I can't convince you anymore because no 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 the first half of your point actually does get at what I was hoping to get from you is like give me something that explains this better that's all I'm asking right like and I think 
based on my limited understanding, I think you did that. So thank you. It's this, you know, it's everything after the first half of just like, I, you know, like, yeah. I don't know if I, I necessarily agree that it well, confuses the relationship here. I, I just want something that explains what happens to me when I'm at fucking work. Yeah. Like, so like maybe, maybe we can put it this way is that theoretically speaking, in order to look at wage differentials, I guess there's, you know, there's two kinds of ways to look at those things as, as rents. One of them doesn't have a labor theory of value. The other kind of does have a labor theory of value. It's just that it doesn't accept, accept that skilled labor has some kind of multiplier effect. In order to conceive of these, you know, differentiated sectors of the working class, without rents, you need a labor theory of value, or at, or at least it's su- sufficient to have, it's not necessary, but I, I can't think of an alternative. You need a labor theory of, labor theory of value with that multiplier effect reading of skilled labor. So, you know, that's one version of the labor theory of value. But I think every other theory, if I'm not mistaken, and I think uh, Kyle, Tom, you'd probably be able to check me better on this. Maybe there's some like heterodox theories or historical theories that are alternatives, but most people conceive of these differentials as rents. Outside of that specific reading of labor theory of value with the multiplier effect on skilled labor. Well, like just, that's the standard. Just to make sure that I'm, I'm keeping up with the conversation here. And, you know, just to make sure that the audience is too, because Sophie's hor- like horning in on, on my position as the dumb bimbo in this podcast. And, and I, I don't like it. You've but- both been on Twitter. That's so cute. <laughs> I've been on Twitter less. I'm so I, I, I think like what's what's happening here is that Right, what Wright is saying with his argument of this this kind of like counter exploitation is is kind of paralleled by by what you're saying in in the way in which having a higher skill or being in a union, whatever, these are forms of taking away some of the value that the capitalist is capturing as a form of exploitation, right? And what right I think what Wright is saying here is that even if you consider it a form of exploitation, because it is not exceeding the exploitation that the capitalists are doing in the first place and almost definitionally can't, then like that doesn't really matter. But I think what your point is, Tom, is that even calling it exploitation and saying it doesn't matter kind of misses the point because you're using a definition of exploitation and sort of like granting it legitimacy over an area in which you fundamentally disagree that it should be at. Like it's not necessarily like the consequences of like the direct consequences of his argument that you're opposing here. It is the application of a term and of a definition that is kind of like fundamentally broken in a way. Like, am I getting all this correct? Yeah, I think so. Like he's using the wrong, like like you're using the term of a rent here when to me, like it's not a rent. It's it's fundamentally uh, not a rent. It's a it's a power relation within exploitation relations. Yeah. Maybe, by- okay, well, I will I will add one thing here and then I think I gotta get going. Okay, so if you want to take this rentier perspective, there is in the background 
the neoclassical notion of perfect competition and the returns that that implies to labor, right? Like as a yardstick that you use to measure, like is someone renting or not? Or is, is someone getting rents or not? But if you're coming at this from uh, like Marx's point of view as like sort of this weirdo heterodox classical political economy guy, you don't have that notion of perfect competition. And so there is no such yardstick. Like these are floating values in a turbulent system. They're not things that you measure above or below a certain line that is defined as perfect competition. And so if you don't have that, that yardstick, that line of perfect competition, then why bother calling this a rent? I right. Think, I, I guess my, my follow-up question is, does... So, okay, so it seems like Wright takes on this concept of rent and just modifies it with his definition of exploitation, Right. But he doesn't take, does he take seriously the concept of perfect competition or is that just assumed for the sake of this argument? It's, it's assumed for the sake of the argument and it's also a thing that is really, it's like... It's so baked into these neoclassical... Admitting, admitting the, le like the legitimacy of it as a thing that could even potentially exist sort of colors your argument inherently because you 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 conceive of this like baseline existing where the other side wouldn't even admit that it exists so that's that's I, like i wouldn't say he's like you know die hard rah rah perfect competition guy but he's still falling into the same problem that all heterodox economists who use a neoclassical baseline do which is admitting that this is like a sort of normative model that exists in the world that we can usefully speak about. I think because of his, you know, training as a sociologist and I, I, and I think elsewhere in the book, we might've noted it earlier on. He mentions, you know, the sort of obvious sociological distance between assumptions like perfect competition. And in this chapter, he's like, yeah, perfect information. I mean, come on. Like, <laughs> like so I, I, I wonder really, like, because- like, I, I don't I think, think his heart I think, is I think, in that stuff. I think, but... he, I think he, no, his heart isn't. There was a point in which he was more like full-throated in support of Romer's economics. But over time, the, the whole reason for his sociological definition of exploitation is because of his dissatisfaction with Romer's economic, neoclassical economics version of exploitation. I, I commend his definitions of exploitation. I think they're very good, right? But I think there is absolutely no need for him in this chapter, right, for him to turn what we're talking about here, what I would consider uh, like positions of power in determining the value of the labor power for the worker, to term them as a rent like he could literally would could have said, neoclassicals call these rent. This is obviously not rent because the exploitation relationship is different than that. But continued in that way. But he he on some level he's taking their arguments and and their language as read, which I think is 
very, very objectionable to me because it confuses the relationship between the worker and the capitalist. The, the fact that a, a worker can ever really exploit like a capitalist is like, well, well, you know, can, maybe uh, in the extreme can case, I, it could possibly happen in an extreme case, but like not the way that we're talking about here, the, what they're actually talking of. So I guess my, my follow-up question then is like, is there a way to take the way that Wright uses employee rents and try to like model that or think about it not in a context of perfect competition. And does that does that map on to reality? Is that a good theory for explaining social relations? Well, like that's what he's doing here, essentially, because he doesn't believe in perfect information or perfect competition or anything. But he doesn't really draw that out in like a non-perfect competition because he's giving a critique of Sorensen. So that's kind of in the background. You don't actually need to use perfect competition as a quantitative baseline because it's something that inherently cannot exist and cannot be measured. It's just a conceptual framework that he's working in. Uh, it's not like you can get a number out of the idea of perfect competition. It's just kind of assumed that like, oh yeah, like if we just let the market play out, like, you know somehow we would have this idea of like, well, this is what everybody would get. What I'm saying is that in this chapter where all these, th this idea is introduced, he, th that those assumptions are still there. And so, yes, because he calls it a rent and he could call it something else no, and then no, no, use no. the same quantitative model and it would be the same quantitative model. But no, 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 that's not what I'm saying, because he doesn't really take the perfect competition thing seriously. So what I'm saying is that they all say that. So what I'm saying is that if he doesn't take the perfect competition thing seriously, but it does take the employee rent thing seriously, then we need to think about does that make sense in conditions of not perfect competition? Right. Or, or does it make sense for him to actually take it on board as a term? No, I I don't care about that. I'm caring well, about the thing I'm saying. Well, let, I, maybe I, I want to like bring this like cycle this around towards like the practical implications of this. Personally, I think because one of the biggest political problems with labor and socialism unions, you know, work, workers politics in the 20th century was the ways that labor could be segmented from its, you know, universal interests. Like, how do you go from like the, you know, great humanist, like, you know, Marxist horizons, the bong rip universal, like class, like class perspective transforming into universal human perspective. How do you get from that to workers of the world unite for a white South Africa? Like how, how does one, how does one get transformed into the other is by all of these like ways of segmenting the proletariat. So I like, I don't know if this is my research program, but devil's advocate argument, right? Let's say that calling that an employment rent is like, you know, fundamentally working class, like this, you know, perfect bourgeois ideology, but that like, you could use this concept to describe so much of the labor segmentation that ends up dividing the international proletariats class interests up so that you, we end up with nationalist class compacts. We end up with guild trade unions. We end up with cop union shit. Like we end up with all, all of the dead ends of 
like 20th and and not to mention a lot of these theorists adopt these versions of rent theory and even you know versions of rents as exploitation theory to understand what the fuck was happening in the USSR so i think that even if, if you if you have a starting point that is tainted and weird you you can make like practical hay out of it in a way that isn't reactionary Right. All I'm saying is like, let's just let's test it. Like, let, let's set aside the fucking odds. Ah, neoclassical. Like, if he's wrong, he's wrong. It shouldn't matter. And so I want to see. I, I want to think about this. Not neoclassical using the wrong terms and it obscures the relation. Like, why not call it a profit? This is explain why not, anything. Why don't we just call it a profit then? Why don't we call it uh, an employment profit? Right, because that's not because that's not what we're that's not the question being posed here. Well, it's no, it's fucking it's exactly why not call it uh, why not call it employment profit, right? It would make no fucking sense to call it employment profit, no more than it does to call it employment rent. It's fucking dumb, right? And if the people are using it as a term, it's fucking it's 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 just all fucked up. It's I don't even know if I agree with up. this, but it like let, let's okay. Let, I'm going to call it an employment it. profit from now on. I'm going to call it employment. I'm going to call it that worker there. He's like he's he's earning profit there by working Damn. for the capitalist who's making profit off him. You know, if Eric if Eric Olin Wright wasn't already dead, I would kind of like be concerned that Tom might go to Madison, Wisconsin, and hunt his ass down. Yeah, I fucking <laughs> I am. I seriously. I, <laughs> Tom's gonna go full Uncle Uncle Ted on on Eric Owen Wright. Oh, yeah, no, 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 no way. No, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna bitch out and fucking send him something in the post. I'm gonna do it face to face. Yeah, again, it's gonna be give, hard. Give him a little kiss. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's going to be hard, all things considered. R.I.P. You know. Yeah. Um, you do not need the con to call this concept a rent. That's fucking fundamental to me. You can call it something else. But like, don't call it a don't call it a rent or a profit. Call it something else. Call it their just why, position of power or whatever. Because why, it matters. Because why? it makes out that like it, it it buys into this fucking logic of of workers. Some like of denying like the overall relationship that that's inherent in there. That somehow like oh it's twenty seven percent capitalist exploitation, fifteen percent fucking workers exploiting capitalists. Like give me a fucking break. You know, I don't think I'm saying anything controversial from a Marxist fucking economics point of view. I think I'm just saying the plain, simple orthodoxy. And oh, I'm giving okay. out from a, from a point of a Marxist point of view of un, how the understanding e e economy is like that. We're so that I that. object. I object to a fellow Marxist, apparently he calls himself a Marxist, using a neoclassical concept without even objecting to the name of it and taking it on board. And we've, you know, we've already like talked about the other parts in the chapters so far about how like it, they have excised certain elements of what we would think is good about Marx. And here's another example. And we, you know, and I think all of this is symptomatic of, you know, obviously I haven't, yeah, I haven't even finished the book, but it's symptomatic to me of what I know of his politics and where he ended up from Esri. And all of this is symptomatic and it just irritates the shit out of me. <laughs> the reason I don't blame Eric Owen Wright, and I've ex explained this before, is that this is a sociologist who did defend the labor theory of value in the paradigm available 
in public as it was like falling apart and then just sort of like got convinced out. And, you know, maybe he should have been, you know, reading the right books by the time he's like practicing in the, in the 2000s. You know, he was around for decades. It's like, a, I think he was like head of the American Sociologist Association. There's a lot of reasons to be suspicious of right. Like, you know, like he's a, you know, he's like, like a preeminent, like sociologist. Right. I think there is, it's extremely important just from a science, like let's leave like Marx and all that bullshit out of it, right? But it's extremely important from a scientific point of view to describe and the, the relations, say, if you're, no matter what you're doing in science, to get them and the concepts right and to not confuse the concepts, you know? And like that, this stuff, like of calling that a rent, it just like irritates the scientist in me that it muddles what the actual relationship is. And I find that just like scientifically really offensive. You know what I mean? you'd like to help fund the book that Donald and myself are writing about communist economic planning, please head over to the website theclasslesssocietyinmotion.com where you can donate to our fund to help us get this book out in a finite time. Everybody who donates will get a signed copy of the book when it's released. So head on over there today and help us with this really important project. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast research collective. Make sure to check out our network sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit, Jumpsuit Utopia, Mortal Science, and Swampside Chats. And if you'd like to help out the show, please remember to head over to Patreon and throw me a few commie dollar. On this episode, you heard the theme tune The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters and Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. Thank you.